0: I'm Gary Bird. Welcome to the Unknown Origins Podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert? Looking for insights or growing your career? The Unknown Origins Podcast provides access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Today, we've got something very different. Instead of Roy interviewing people, I'm going to be taking that role and speaking to Roy. So Roy, I've known you a while now, since we met at Microsoft about 13 or
1: 14 years ago. But can you give me a quick through of your working time since leaving school? I started as an interaction designer and software engineer for a consultancy, outsourcing and technology services and solutions company. I joined as part of their graduate program where I served as a software engineer and interaction designer designing and engineering software for remotely operated vehicles, a passenger ticketing system for a mega city subway system and a pay-as-you-go solutions for telecommunication providers to enable consumers to purchase credit in advance of service use. Then I joined a mobility company where I led the technology management to envision and implement a revolutionary engineering and manufacturing centre that included research, skills and education training and startup business incubation and acceleration. Then I joined a management consultancy as part of their strategy and operations consulting practice where I helped clients improve growth, margin, Acquisition across media, entertainment, telecommunications and retail industry segments. Then, right out of a trap door, I took a complete left turn and joined Microsoft, where I did a diverse range of consulting, marketing, product and business development leadership positions, culminating to my final post of leading the industry product marketing team, which was responsible for the creation and implementation of the industry product marketing strategy, new product development and promotion of the company's products and offerings across all industries. One of the finest achievements we did as a team was to rewrite the company's industry brand story to broaden relevance with audiences, partners and influencers and scaling it to new heights that contributed to becoming the world's most valued brand and trillion dollar business. Then, just over a year ago, I left to launch and run my own company, Unknown Origins. But Gary, the actual catalyst for the move actually came about three years prior where I co-produced a documentary about creativity in the digital age with the guitarist Johnny Marr at his studio in Manchester where I spent two entire days with Johnny and his band which I felt so comfortable and inspired to be in and around him and his, his his band that was a seminal moment in my life It was a fork in the road that made me prioritise and decide this was what I wanted to do and the types of people I wanted to be around for the rest of my life. Then the final evening after making the documentary, you and I met up at the Lowry Hotel in Manchester in a divine warm summer's night and I remember discussing that with you and solidifying my commitment to making that exit happen.
0: Now, I remember that night. Yeah, it was a couple of a couple of drinks we had. It was a good. Um, it was a good time. But I remember you were buzzing. So let's move. We're going to come back to Johnny more. I think in, during this conversation. So let's bring it right up to date. The
1: podcast, the book, the new business venture. Let's let's start with the basics. How do you describe Unknown Origins? Unknown Origins is on a mission to save the world from unoriginality by unleashing the power of creativity. That's a mission I'm deeply. Passionate and committed to. Translating that into a functioning business means a creative design studio that provides creative strategy, brand creation, storytelling, and envisioning solutions for artists, businesses, educators, and entrepreneurs. By applying the creative process to drive breakthrough impact by blending the art and science of aesthetics with excellence in craftsmanship and being inspired by, but also influencing industry developments and culture by connecting emotions and imagination through the work we do. Thanks, Roy. You've got, a, this may not be obvious to people, but you've got a very innovative approach for how you
0: um, complete work by bringing teams together, by bringing specialists and experts together for that particular project. This, now, this model has been used in some industries such as film for a while and, and obviously music, but you're bringing this to business. Can you talk about why this is a model that you think is a much better model than having that
1: permanently engaged team? When I've been involved in creative pursuits, what I've noticed is a distinct parallel around how film crews and film teams kind of come together to, to serve um, a, a purpose. And then they come together, they, they, they buy into that purpose, they contribute to that purpose. And then throughout that creative process, of making the film, they, you know, you don't particularly, you, you don't really have a hierarchy w- within that, right? What what happens is, you have very smart people, very skilled people who are masters at their craft, and when they buy in to that idea and concept, they then step up within the creative process and lead, as and where need be, um, to to deliver on their specific part within that. It's obviously their passion, their skill, that that kind of area. And once that project has ended, they then disperse and then move on to the next thing, whatever that might be. And so within that, what you don't have, you don't have hierarchy. You don't have hangers-on. You don't have politics. You don't have prejudices and anything other than excellence at delivering on that mission and, and bringing that idea to life is not tolerated. And so I think that is a highly, well, it's obviously a creative model, but it's a highly productive model for how work should be done. And the realities of that is when you look at extremely high-performing units and teams across every industry, right? so let's take the military, for example, the British Special Air Service and the, the Navy SEALs, who would be the, the US equivalent of that, they are perfect examples of that operating kind of model where they're highly skilled um, individuals that come together to serve a purpose for the greater good. They're led by a purpose, they're mission-driven in that approach, and they're willing to be led and to lead within that whole process. But also, they tap into networks to help them acquire expertise really, really rapidly or to fill voids where they don't have specific expertise. But it's all about getting to the end point of bringing that mission um, to fruition. And so translate that to um, sports, you know, like the All Blacks, the the great Manchester United, Liverpool, Real Madrid teams um, of bygone kind of eras. They were all... um, teams that were like that you know um although they had very strong leaders within that but they had a whole ecosystem and a culture that was based on that winning mentality and that um culture of excellence right just being absolutely excellent at what you can do and the continuous repetition of of that and i don't mean re- repeating doing the same thing again and again and again i mean the repetition of 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 continuous excellence and winning mentality. And so I think if more organizations were focused on, you know, craftsmanship, excellence, autonomy, um, you know, doing great work and that leadership's primary role was to to bring together the best talent possible to infuse the best behaviors and to remove the barriers for great work to happen the world would be a much better place as opposed to organizations where there can be a lot of playing to the the gallery a lot of checkboxing and ultimately you know you don't combat exclusive by behavior by creating exclusiveness right you do it by creating um an open level playing field where you you set the bar for excellence, you you define the standards, and then you enable people to to come in and, and the people that work the hardest, that have the right values and behaviors, that have the true skills to do the job, um, and they 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 inspire others to do it as well. Those are the ones that should be navigating towards, you know, earned leadership positions or or positions of, of reward not because of unfair bias or because of um, certain other factors that might come into consideration. By that, you're creating a true meritocracy and not just creating it, you're managing and rewarding it in a way that that, that enables that to happen.
0: No, thanks. I, I, I agree. I think one, if I was going to make an observation, I think, and I'll, I'll, this, will, this, I'll turn this into a question, but I think one of the observations I would make is that certainly special forces is notorious from having a very very high bar making the, the 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 bar to even qualify to apply very high but even so once that once that process starts i think two things that really resonated one that they will ruthlessly go through that group to find the fit with the group so not necessarily the strongest best is fast but the person who fits with the group and and certainly the SAS is notorious for having maybe 200 applicants and picking, you know, as little as six or seven at the end of it. But I think the other one that's interesting for um, industry as a, a, I'll ask you to comment on this in a second is perhaps the idea that they are not assessed. They are assessed by people who've been doing that job. Um, I think that that's certainly something that was a case in Microsoft for a, a, a while when we joined that actually the people doing the assessing, the people who were judging you, were judging you on the fit with you joining the team. Now that's absolutely stretching it between special forces and, and organizations. But I think there is a parallel that the importance of that cultural fit, the importance of having a good personal fit with the people who are going, you're going to be working with, you were never, a team was never going to be faced with working with somebody who it would never have hired itself, is that is that something you've actually found not done in a lot of organisations?
1: Yes, I, I I do, and I it's a great um, com- comparison there, Gary, an analogy. I what I what I learned, what I've learned in terms of kind of where I'm at now is, and maybe I'm being a bit too purist about this, but I'll just put it out there. When you look at professions like a pilot, medicine, um, teaching, right? Would you allow your children to be to go to school and be taught by a teacher that didn't know how to teach? Would you would you board a plane that didn't have a pilot that was experienced in flying or experienced enough in flying? Would you let yourself be operated on by? Um, a a doctor who just wasn't qualified enough, right? And and the answer to all three of those, all things being equal, it's no. So in any profession that demands excellence, then why do you allow anything other than excellence to happen? And especially in those companies that you mentioned as well, where, you know, those standards need to be really instilled in the expectation and, and, you know the, the, the true success and brilliance needs to be rewarded um fairly and squarely it's a little bit like you know when you go back to to school Gary and remember like sports days and things like that the the people that were the best runners the best um pole vaulters or whatever were the ones that, you know, they they, they, they they won because they were the most talented, they were the best at it, and others respected that, and it gave them something to aspire to. So for that following year, the ones that were really determined and put the work in um, and learned new new te- techniques and formed a, 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 a growth mindset, to, sorry to use a cliche there, but it's true, um, had the opportunity to really step up and, and, and excel, you know, Um, and based on observation from that year as well how did that person win the race what how did they how did they prepare how would how did they what techniques did they use oh how could I learn from that and then infusing that within your own kind of game right and to me that's fair right Um, and but when you're creating but when you're giving everybody a medal right or a a, or a, a, a trophy I I understand why you're trying to make everyone feel involved, but everyone already is involved. But that's not setting a bar for excellence and it's not pushing people out of their comfort zones and it's not creating a a true meritocracy, which drives excellence in in terms of kind of performance. So, um, yeah, that's that's my interpretation of that.
0: No, thanks. We're going to come back to this, but what I want to do is just take you back a bit to unknown origins. You wrote the book After Leaving Microsoft. Could you not have written it whilst working there?
1: In hindsight, I needed the time to decompress and to really cut myself completely free from that world. And although I wrote the book about my um, passions, my, my experiences and what I loved and what, what I didn't love, and ultimately how I interpreted and, and uh, viewed the world I had absolutely no desire to write about anything uh, about being in that space right at, at Microsoft or in that a corporate environment at all and although you know the my subconscious obviously played a role within how I manifested and, and how things came out within how I, I crafted the 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 book but nothing in there is intentional and absolutely nothing in that book is actually specific to to Microsoft or any other uh, business that I've been in per se, but, which to some people, that might have been the, the most easiest way to break out of the roles that I kind of did in organizations that I worked in to write about that and, you know, to, to cash in. And I, but I didn't do that at all. And I'm not trying to say that to try and sound cool or or, um controversial I just had no appeal to do that and I, and what I wanted to do I w- was beyond that in, in my mind and so in building you know beloved brands envisioning and bringing new products and services to market reimagining uh, business models building startups from the ground up um rewriting the, the the history the, sorry rewriting the, the the industry brand story for um, one of the, the, the most valued companies in the world, although that's probably infused within the, 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 the tone and the hopefully some of the, the, the insights and experience that comes out there. It's not specific to um, any of those organizations that, that I was in. So I was very intentional about being actually quite political, political about how I went about um, designing the book from the off in terms of what I wanted to be in the book. And what I absolutely did not want to be in the book and to be really disciplined about that and to make that sacrifices along the way, which I think I did. And so, um, yeah, so having the time was having the time and space and to come completely out of that world so that I could really revitalize and re-energize and have a very clear perspective so that I was truly writing from my, my inner self and my experiences and hopefully, um, reflecting that within how I came about in terms of how I, the, the voice and tone in terms of how I wrote the book, which the whole process, Gary, was very liberating. And it rejuvenated me to the point where my, my energy and, and drive felt a lot like what it did being a teenager, where the world is in front of you and you, you kind of had that kind of um, childlike wonder and curiosity and, and rush towards adventure and the unknown
0: so that's that's taking me to the next part, which I think you've you've already alluded to. So, why did
1: you start a podcast? So was that a logical step from the book to bring it to life? I wanted to do something in the spirit of the the bygone. Um, I say bygone, but it's still omnipresent now. The the theater of the mind, you know, like being that teenager in your bedroom in a you know, a, a dark winter's January or February. Night, listening to to BBC Radio Two or Radio Luxembourg, and hearing all of these fantastic stories and and music that came from other worlds, or so it seemed at the time. And and to me, that that just mushroomed my imagination and, and curiosity. And so I, that's always stuck with me as an appeal through all of my life. Like I've really appreciated radio and theatre of the mind. Um, Communication medium, so that was kind of there somewhere in in my mind's la- landscape, um, and how things like play um, interviews and and plays and and the power of voice really played a role in, in um, inspiring and influencing um, audiences. Um, so when it, when the time came and I was exploring ways where I could start to connect to audiences from a community. Um, perspective and the community side of things was really important because I wanted to do something that was non absolutely non-corporate was non-revenue oriented was no advertisements it was pure community where it was setting up um, a platform that would enable creators from all over the world by authentic connections amongst architects Artists, entrepreneurs, fashion designers, filmmakers, musicians, and people involved in pop culture curation um, and the likes that could really share their perspective around their creative practices, their creative process, and just their life story from how they came into the the, the world, what attracted the, the appeal for gravitating towards the the things that they ended up kind of doing, and then also. You know what's their lessons learned, the pitfalls to avoid, and also their vision for the future within that domain. And what's been what's been really encouraging, Gary, throughout that process is when you have the outsider in viewpoint and the cross pollinating across multiple knowledge domains and and um, disciplines, where you may have a, a filmmaker who'll reach out and say, "Hey, look, that podcast that was done with the artist or the designer." I found that thing really fascinating around what they did within their ideation process or how they went about um, rapid iteration and and crowdsourcing or how they did things around um, tinkering with technologies and then they they integrated that with traditional craft. I found that really fascinating and so I'm going to infuse that within how I make films. And so when you have that that cross-pollination and When things appear from where they might not have been anticipated, but it's created a spark and it's helped encourage someone in a moment of serendipity to do something different that might spark a new revolution or spark them towards greatness is a really encouraging thing to hear. But it's all around community and it's providing that platform and curating that platform in as best a quality way that we possibly can so that we're providing that to the the creative industry to the creative community globally, and it's been such an enjoyable process to to do that, and incredible learning as well. And it just breaks down those barriers from what you thought were maybe in the way, but never really were. But um, and you've helped um, remove them um, to to a point. um And again, as well, like the important thing was to do it in a way that was very non-capitalistic and free and um, community um or community led no i enjoy i enjoy listening to them so a couple of quick questions
0: how do you select the people you invite onto the podcast
1: it's entirely self-selection and based on people i find interesting who are either established or aspiring artists aspiring creators who have a story to tell now throughout that journey when you get interest in people like yourself gary and others who've participated very kind yeah yeah um, who have participated, they may suggest others or people who are part of their community or their audience might be inspired by what they've communicated and think, oh, I'd love to be part of that and share my story. And so it can come through that angle as well, but it's very much um, self-selection and it's based on um, not people like me or, be, or people I think should not like that at all. It's it's genuinely people that have done interesting things that have impacted um their domain in a positive progressive way um but have a very diverse and unique story to, to 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 tell um that i think as well that the the community would get value from
0: so thanks for that roy you're approaching 100 episodes now i'm not sure what number this will be when it goes out maybe 100 and you've hosted a wide variety of guests from across a range of
1: disciplines what is it that that you think makes a great show you're absolutely this this will be the 100th episode and that's been by design um because um I just thought it was a good opportunity now that you know we're just over a year in to um unknown origins and in the spirit of communicating and sharing insight and knowledge with the community, I just thought it would be good, a good opportunity to share the learnings and insights and um, over the last year for anyone that may be interested within that, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's artists, whether it's businesses or educators. But to answer your, your, your story, story specifically, it's storytelling, because stories are the oxygen for communication. We all love a good story. And storytelling is a language that unites the world. It brings us together. It helps us understand our past and reach toward the future. And a well-told story engages the mind, heart, and soul. And everyone that's been involved in the, the, the podcast series have had their own unique story to tell, and they tell it in an authentic way, which conveys their purpose, their meaning, and it helps the community to a, to a point understand themselves and find common ground with others by making those kind of connections and uniting uh, people. So I think it's just good old-fashioned storytelling that you know, helps link ideas, helps link concepts and expertise from multiple knowledge bases and you know as well as those traditions legends myths archetypes culture history and values from the past and present hopefully that provides a torch that can help light the way into the future for keen innovators who are who are tuning in but ultimately it's a platform that helps people um, have the ability to to really stand on the shoulders of giants to learn from creators of today, and historically as well, but use that as a platform as well, that they can um, move forward and do something new that isn't a reinvention of things that has already been done or a reinvention of the wheel, to to use a cliche, um, to invent something new in their respective field. You've had some amazing
0: guests on there, really diverse and great episodes, but who would you love
1: to join you for an episode and why? Daniel Day Lewis, and the sad thing is, he's he's a master of saying no to, to everything, <laughs> and he's and he's and um, I did reach out to his um, agent, and she was an lo- absolutely lovely person and very kindly. Um the, the, the Very the, kind, no. very kindly de- declined, but wished us all the very best, which was really sweet. But so, why, why Daniel Day Lewis? Why Daniel Day Lewis? Right, and I think it's for that reason because I'm saying no. Oh, his standards are just, and that saying no is I, I, I understand that because he's obviously got a very clear vision in his head around what he is and what he is not, the things that he wants to do and the things that he does not. And he's, he sets that bar excruciatingly high. You'll never see Daniel Day-Lewis in a naff, in cheap, throwaway comedy or something just, you know, um, on, you know, just irrelevant. His, everything he does is, is epic and memorable. Whether you like the film or not, his performance in it is always um, on the edge. And it's for that, I think it's his art history and his extreme dedication to perfecting his craft, and the finest of detail, and the sacrifices he makes along the way—I um, mean, just the things that he's done for um, all of the, the the films he's been involved in, like um, you know where he played the character of um, the character in My Left Foot, where they had cerebral palsy, and the, the, he he really went to that depth of becoming that kind of character and operating exactly like that and the time as well that he spent in solitary confinement with uh, no food or water when he did when he was imprisoned within in the name of the father and um also how he learned to to build canoes fight with tomahawks and skin and cook animals when he played the his role in the last of the mohicans and so just having that extreme dedication um and you know that ability to just go in and really learn a role and really understand a character. And it's not just about just copying that, right? It's about really getting connected to the inner soul and the spirit, but then channeling that in a way, manifesting that in a way and that it becomes him and he becomes like in of role. And by doing that, that's his creative process. That's his technique for getting the most out of himself as, as, as an artist, as a, as an actor, Um, and hence why he's able to really go to that edge of of repeatedly um, executing on unforgettable performances. No, I completely agree.
0: Um, What I want to do now is really go, we've talked about the book, but let's go a bit deeper into it. Your book has some clear themes, credibility, creativity, authenticity, passion, originality, innovation. There've been many books written before about innovation and creativity, but you focus very much on the importance of authenticity. What is it and why is it important and relevant to innovation in art?
1: Starting with everyday life, for frustratingly, Gary, we live in a world that's even more saturated with consumer-led celebrity culture more than it's ever been, as far as I can tell. Where everyone looks the same and everything is for sale. And that's not overlooking I mean, although there's a lot of micro um, movements out there that are doing great things for society and a lot of individuality and artistry that's coming through, which is fantastic to see. But in general terms, everyone looks the same. Everything is for sale. And the reality in which this is the reality in which we live, which is counterintuitive to nurturing creativity and eccentricity and, and newness. And so to achieve authentic creative expression, We are having, it it means having to fearlessly swim against the sea of time in search of the authentic and new while staving off these false promises of easy gratification through the likes of um, YouTube, TikTok. Um, In fact, most, the majority of social media operates as a a platform for for nothingness. I mean, I love the idea of the democratisation of media um, for the masses, but the, the down effect of that is the quality of content is absolutely crap. And also the, the people that are participating in that crap quality um, are not talented and they have no expertise within that domain. And so it's demeaning to the people that really do have talent or would have had a greater opportunity if that sea wasn't being polluted by lots of information and noise that's just saturating um the, 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 the ones that really should be making that breakthrough, which are the ones that genuinely have worked hard to cultivate their talent, that really do have something um, new to say and to, to express. And so by being authentically creative means embracing originality and making unique connections between disparate universes, past and present, to light the way into the future. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Gary, the importance of standing on the shoulders of giants by learning from history, not to, not to try and um, do the same as by any means. It means understanding it deeply to avoid reinventing the wheel so that you are truly making progress in your creative pursuits and you're doing something that's truly inventive. I'll give an example there. I, I, I remember um, you know interviews that I'd watched and observed with the likes of Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and Ray Davies and they were speaking about you know what it was like to be an artist in the, in the 1960s and you know Paul McCartney would say oh, like I couldn't wait to hear the Kinks the next Kings record to see what they where they'd taken music, what that next great song was, what the record cover was going to look like, what the sonic was going to be, how were they going to look when they showed up on top of the pops in terms of the, the fashion that they wore. He was just so thrilled and excited and always was in anticipation to see what that was. And then Ray Davis would say exactly the same about the the, the Beatles around, I couldn't, well, basically all those things that I said there about what Paul McCartney said said about the Kinks, Ray Davis's band. And so there was this, like, it was almost like they were being frontiering where nothing else had been invented like that at that time. And they knew they were on a wave of constant innovation for that time. And so that pushed them to be competitive in a way that was pushing one another to really keep moving forward in a way that was progressing. And when you look at those musical movements at that time, and it also evolved into the 1970s as well, which was an incredibly creative time across entertainment across music, across fashion, um, like hugely diverse and stylish times in terms of the amount of micro revolutions that, that, that was happening. But th- these people weren't dri- driven to be copyists. They were driven because they were they were looking at past, present, observing it, but then thinking, how can I do something different that will make me stand out and do something original and authentic? And so when you fast forward and you look back upon time over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and you can see things much clearer and how everything is inter- interconnected. I think there was something in that sensibility that they had there around do it yourself, um, non copyist, um, you know, the, the, the importance of being original. And if you ripped people off, you would, you were going to get sued or you were going to get punished for it. Right. Whereas nowadays there's a distinct cut and paste culture where that that stuff doesn't seem to matter anymore, and it seems to be acceptable to, to copy and plagiarize. And maybe that's came through the internet culture, the social media culture, but it's it's absolutely um, derailed the, the the integrity and uh, the the, the authenticity of creativity.
0: So, no, I, I, I certainly agree, and I, I think we've 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 both had stuff that we've done ripped off, and you don't mind it being ripped off. You don't mind it being reused. The frustration comes when it's not acknowledged or it's, it's just represented. It's not even changed. You're not adding to it. So, you know, building on that, what do you see as the biggest, what is the biggest misunderstanding that you see again and again about creativity?
1: Yeah. So there's a few things here, right. And it manifests itself in multiple ways, but I'll, I'll give a few examples. It's not the uniform, stereotyped, pseudo archetypes. It's far from it, you know. Creativity is the ability to make the invisible visible by taking what is not to create what is, and it manifests inside you and around you by your unique ability to transcend the obvious, ordinary, and routine. And it means, like I said earlier, connecting the past to the present by putting things together in, in new ways. But creativity is about believing in yourself, your ideas, and to be able to see around the corners to fearlessly light the way into the future to bring new solutions. And that solutions could be an industrial design, a graphic design, a poem, a story, um, a song, whatever, a brand campaign, a new business. Um, And I think the other thing as well, the the other big misconception is that creative leaders within an organization, within a, a business, are unreliable and not to be trusted in leadership positions, Um, which is crazy because creativity is the most distinguishable quality for every single leader in every domain. And creative leaders display distinctly different behaviors, values, and characteristics than traditional management. And it's the traditional management that always seem to get promoted and rewarded over the long run um, for their efforts because they're a safe pair of hands. They, they're ultimately maintaining the status quo than doing anything risk-taking or um, disruptive that gets exponential re- results and inspire creativity in others and, and 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 the likes. And so I think organizations have a lot to learn because there's that instant fear of someone that comes in who... Is, is different, that has a new view. And in many organizations, they can marginalize that person really quickly and and, and mitigate them from having any airtime um, and, and chance of, of of success. And sadly, that tends to happen much more than than not. And so I think there's a lot to be learned for organizations not to pay lip service to the, the idea of creativity and innovation, to but ultimately what they're doing is um, disguising it um, through their architecture or whatever means they, they do, just to keep, keep a certain profile and an image. But ultimately, all is what they're really doing is revving up the past by promoting leaders who do not espouse creative leadership, and instead are perceived as mentioned earlier, safer, risk averse, and likely to, to to maintain the status quo, which is diametrically opposed to the necessary leadership needed to, to to move the world forward. So, those are a few examples there in terms of the miss. The, the great misunderstandings of uh, creativity. I think it's a, a, a really
0: great point because I think one of the, the things you highlight there is the belief in many organisations that a safe pair of hands that doesn't change is the safest thing for the company. But actually, if anything, what we've seen over the last few years, and this is, this is not a recent thing, but we've seen an acceleration of this, is that it's the failure to evolve that sees companies die. Exactly. It is the failure to anticipate technology change, to embrace behavioural change, to em- to to embrace a changing buying ha- sorry buying habits that sees companies very quickly become irrelevant. So, yeah. moving on from this, I get what you say. My company doesn't want to change. I'm 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 inside the company, and I can see where we're going. I can see that this failure to innovate, this this locking down on it's worked in the past it will work in the future is going to drive us off a cliff what can i do
1: you 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 touched on it with the commentary you just made prior to the the question there gary every single artist entrepreneur and business needs to innovate continuously or they risk being surpassed by their competition in the long term that's period that's that's the inevitable because Art invents, science evolves, technologies improve, industries change, economics and politics adapt. adapt. Society moves forward and and human life goes on because we exist in time and where change is constant. And therefore, to adapt, grow and flourish, you need to keep your finger on the pulse of your market's ever-evolving needs. And the golden rule, Gary, that we've, we've all learned and we've all seen in history is to avoid the deadly sin of complacency and greed and many many organizations take the cowardly way and cave in you know they always seem to take the, the obvious and and uh, route which is more often than not maintain the status quo and you know keep those rose-tinted glasses on and keep doing what we've always done without and, and being ignorant to what's going on around them and how the, the world has moved forward and caught up and overtooking with them and then they're the miss is inevitable and that goes right back to shakespearean kind of plays right where that characteristic um and virtue is is embedded within that and yet hundreds and hundreds of years onwards we still don't seem to to have truly learned and um, how to, to mitigate and overcome those situations um but why why does that happen in organizations and in general people can be shiftless and self-gratifying and as a result that's why the, the future leaves them behind. And we've seen many examples of this, Gary, as we've well documented previous, in previous podcasts around the complacency and destructive habits of companies like Xerox, Kodak, Blockbuster, BlackBerry. And there's millions, millions of others that's been laid to rest within the graveyard of the disrupted giant, right? That they are, those are just some examples of that. But it's exactly the same motto within the creative arts. You know many art movements come and go fashions flash and burn and this lazy and habitual nature of human beings where we get consumed easily we get bored quickly our minds simply are not big enough to consume and look beyond the north south west east and west east and west 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 <laughs> the north south west and east 24 by seven i, I get what you're saying so, so pick it pick it up on that
0: creativity your book Doesn't limit itself to one domain, whether and and you know, we're not we use the word unique? But it is certainly a smaller number of books that mix business, music, art. So, do you you, do you see these as connected? Do you believe that we need to encourage more mixing of these?
1: Yes, I think what we're learning more than probably ever, and I say that totally as a generalisation. And for someone that's only lived um, forty plus. Years right, I, I can't speak for authority for the whole of history and time, but you, you you get the gist. So the cross pollination, stop you having to
0: go, boy. <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> the the, the cross pollination and blending of knowledge across multiple domains by combining individuals' intellectual capital and know how, and that's vital to exploring new ideas and finding innovative solutions, and not to be afraid to to, to learn. And I think as well, Gary, if I'm being honest, is I've. When I was when I was born, right? I was I was left-handed, and I didn't think this was an advantage at all at the time. And my kindergarten teacher forced me to to be right-handed because she thought it was a sign of evil if you were left-handed, and uh, you would be disadvantaged and blah blah blah. Right? And you know, even though she's by the way, she's a lovely person and a very very good teacher, but. Like many of us do, when in certain parts of our life we kind of get caught up with myths and and things that just seem so strange. And um, so anyway, that for a period of time I was um, I could write with both right and left hand, right. But as I evolved, obviously my right hand became the 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 strongest. But all the other parts that a left handed person would use in their body. Um, like for example, when I play soccer, it's all left foot stuff, right? When I play other sports, it's all left-sided oriented. And so, anyway, when I when I came to go and do studies and things like that, right? My I'm a mix of science and the arts, and so I've always been interested in both. You know, um, critical thinking, but you know, more so creative thinking for for sure. But I've also, I've always been interested in both fields and practiced in both fields. But when I've done engineering-oriented type of positions, when I've got to the outcome, Gary, even though it's been similar to more what you would categorize as being traditional engineers, they were much more methodical and organized and um, sequential and Linear in terms of how they approach things, where I wasn't, and they were able to articulate and define much more eloquently in terms of how they did what they did, why they did what they did, and what the outcome was. Where I'd got to the outcome, but I'd used a very different approach, methodology, and and mental map to kind of get there. And and so anyway, the point being is, you know, I've always had like a, a broad palette in terms of the things that I've been interested in, the things that I've gravitated towards, the people that I've gravitated towards. And I've never seen boundaries between any of them. I've always seen, um, you know, m- you know, math, um, chemistry, art, um, science, you know, biology, all within um, a realm. And when, whenever you need to refer on those things to help solve a problem, even if it might appear that, that the solution to that problem might be so opaque, but yet dabbling into those different um fields can help solve a problem when you don't necessarily think it might would so i think that's been advantageous over over time um whereas at the beginning and i I really didn't i thought it was a disadvantage
0: i want to pick you up on something there because it's something we've discussed before but i think it's it's probably relevant in terms of where you're and what what you've just covered so many of our education systems including the us the uk and actually many um um ones in uh encourage student to to select their vocation whether business, art, language, maths, science at quite an early age maybe certainly in the UK it's 13 or 14 where students make those initial choices it could, it could actually be as early as 10 or 11 when they're picking those school specialisms so do you believe that this is a mistake a missed opportunity are we encouraging those those hard separations of learning
1: rather than seeing the value of this being blended? Fundamentally, we live in the 21st century, Gary, and, but yet our education systems, for the most part, are still designed to meet the bygone needs of the Victorian Industrial Age. And that was certainly the the, the education system that you and I grew up in back in the 80s and the 90s. And where recall was valued over imagination and steering children away from the subjects that they liked, instead of mandating a teaching model that, that was based on ease, of administration and replicability and instead of embracing creativity and flexible unstructured learning and you know that is counter cultural counterintuitive to free thought and it completely crushes your imagination and innovation and just forces you into subjects and fields that you're made to perceive that we will just get you a job because all those other things that you you like to do whether it's dancing whether it's painting pictures whether it's telling stories you can't make any money from that you're never going to be so just knock it on the head and get real that was very much the the yeah and it's just shockingly bad and wrong advice you know And, and that's why as well gary i think so many people from those oppressed environments who weren't favoured through the system or wouldn't adapt to it or were just indifferent to it were completely discouraged. And, you know, the ones that did make it through that system were more often than not the ones that, you know, were, were, um, white, from white collar and and backgrounds and ushered into, um, you know, white collar professions, whether it was like being a lawyer, um, a, a teacher, a doctor, um things like that and then others were pretty much sent to the factories to 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 work in blue collar type work i know i'm over dramatizing things and maybe humming up a little bit but you get the drift right um but there's no there's no
0: roy if i can interrupt i i don't think you are because i think you know speaking to um, my kids speaking to some <laughs> some, of some young people today. I think there is still that perception that as, as children get to 15, 16, that the attention in the school goes to those who have a clear idea where they're going, those set high academic ambitions. And actually we're seeing the, will, the, the acceptance of, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to learn. I want to embrace the world. I want to travel as, as almost a secondary, you know, level of achievement. You know it is about you certainly hear this consistently from children today still which is very disappointing about it is it is about the grades it is about having a very clear plan for where you're going what you're doing and that's where the focus of the teachers goes so let me flip this to a question i'm the principal of a high school what
1: should i change in education what should i be
0: changing in my school
1: and still creativity as a core discipline the grassroots and nurture it throughout the educational experience and to recognize that intelligence is multifaceted and embracing things like emotional and social intelligence crit- critical thinking for sure and the practical problem solving that that involves in integrating science arts and humanities as equal parts of a learning jigsaw but the goal is to ultimately instill creative confidence through blended learning programs and encourage that zigzag learning across disciplines and domains with continuous learning pathways that are open to anyone willing to invest effort and time to advance their knowledge, values, and skills. Now, on that, Gary, I have a friend who became a school teacher, and eventually she, she ended up going back to the high school that she and I were educated at and I found that fascinating and so I remember asking her the question and you know what's it like and and she said you know it's so different to our times where now there is so much it's like you're over you're having to over teach and that you're having to continually assess and like the, the, the scholars just don't have time to do anything other than just be in the class and do tests pretty much right so the 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 but knock-on effect of that is they're not having unstructured time to really think, to really learn, and to truly do. Then connecting that to an experience I had several years ago when I was involved in the startup ecosystem development in America, and that entailed working with many of the, the education institutions, in particular the, um, the, the colleges. And I remember having a conversation with a very influential professor at one of the the top colleges and I remember speaking to him around the education experience and I I was being a a bit like provocative deliberately but I said look most unlikely Roy (laughs) but from the time that we left school Gary and going back into like a a, um, school now it hasn't changed at all in terms of the the structure of a classroom and or a lecture theater and how um education is delivered and so I said that to him and and he said, well, you're, you're right, he said, but also he doesn't feel that his students truly learn. He said they're immaculate, brilliant at memory, you know, at recall, at being able to reiterate everything he says and everything that a textbook tells him what to do. But the, the ability to apply what they're truly being taught and to apply that in a real life situation to solve a problem or to think creatively about something, he said, it's, it's non-existent. And I thought, wow, you know, like I remember in, in class, I'm sure Gary, you would have been similar about, to mm-hmm. the point where I was, I was probably such a pain in the ass to so many teachers and students, right? Where, and some of it, I was being, doing it deliberately to, to be rebellious, but a lot of it was, I, th- I just didn't believe in what, what, what was being said or I was cured or in the more positive side of it. I was just genuinely being really curious. And so I was really psychoanalyzing um, things and then trying to find that alternative or trying to get to the truth, of something so I could deeply understand it and then apply my own um flavor with, w- within that. So um that was really revealing what what he kind of said and was no, it's, yeah. it's sad, isn't it? It, it so is so I
0: guess right. So let, let, let me flip this a bit. You're on stage, your audience is 16 year olds, about to leave school, about to go to college to
1: into the work. What lessons should they take from your book? Don't allow yourself to be Contaminated by overprotected parents and teachers who drive you into early specialization and micromanaging your life. To put yourself into situations where you have unstructured time to enable free thought and and, and innovation. The two key things I would say, though, so there's that part there around the the, the sensibility and the the importance of instilling that do it yourself sensibility and, and making, forcing yourself. to to look left when others are looking right, doing that with real intent to get to a a positive solution. The two key things I would say is master your craft. You know, be fabulous at what you do, whatever that is, right? Don't try and cut the corners, you know, roll up the sleeves and put the work in, and, and no matter how naturally talented you might be at something, that's not enough, right? You've got to keep at it and keep building and keep evolving and keep that muscle as strong as as you possibly can. The other one that I would never underestimate, and I did underestimate, and it's something that I regret because it would have accelerated me. It would have helped focus me quicker and it would have accelerated me on my creative pursuits much, much younger if I had been more astute at finding uh, mentorship. So what I mean by that is finding positive role models who are willing to share their skills, insights and experience to help nurture your ideas and, you know, also within that is, again, it's back to the point around understanding and respect in history. That's not, again, history is part of time and what will work then will not work now, but it's about understanding what has happened and how we've got to where we are now and doing that in, a, in an informed way that you are truly um, level set on that, but you can truly invent something new without having to reinvent the wheel. So be fabulous at your craft and the importance of seeking mentorship that can help accelerate you on your way. No, I completely agree. I think, you know, in the master
0: in your crafty, it doesn't matter whether you're a banker, a builder, or a plumber. Just be the best. You are never going to be short of, you're not going no. to be out of a job if you're good at what you do, regardless. It, it, I want to take a bit of a left turn here. So one of the, aspect, one of the aspects of the book that really came through to me Is about society, particularly in the UK. Just going a bit deeper, many of the artists that you refer to come from British northern working class backgrounds. Um, Certainly, um, many of the uh, musicians and artists. Why is this so important or
1: relevant to authenticity? There is a distinct trait in northern British working classness, and there's so it's made up of so many different flavors and and characteristics and, and, and traits and situations and symptoms right but there is a direct par- parallel between northernness and creativity and historically industrial cities like Glasgow and Manchester have an ingrained maker and doer ethos and also port towns like Liverpool and once London as well who had a constant exchange of international trade and diversity of of people and influences coming in and going out and coming in and going out of the, the, the centers, which was obviously culturally enriching for them. But anyway, these creative societies are a space for social integration, for dreaming, making and doing where people can create without fear and solve problems and innovate openly and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. So in contrast to places like Dubai and Singapore, who enjoy high affluence, but conservative politics and strict laws, which result in a lack of diversity of thought, freedom of expression, and ultimately creativity. So successful creative societies all have their own unique quirks and flaws, but the common thread is that they put people and culture first, and people can take ownership of what they make and feel free and safe to be themselves in those environments. So I think that's a, a strong element combined with, in particular, Gary, the generation that we grew up in, in you know, in Northern Britain um, through Thatcherism, and Thatcherism was a very elitist um, regime where it was like it was her intent was to shut down the North and bring everything to the South, and disenfranch and by doing that, she she dis- disenfranchised so many of the north and put them into unemployment and fueling um, many many issues and, and poverty and, and other things. But what is extremely notable within all of that was there was a huge creative surge that came out of the north during that era and beyond, and um, that came from the working classes and that spot manifested itself in music, in art, and design um you know and and i think as well when you look back on history and now especially now is that creativity and eccentricity really is the the key difference in britain it's what puts the great into to, to britain and that's something that I've, i i think i've always had an appreciation a deep affinity for and an appreciation of and the patterns and the, the, the evidence are, are just there. It's all over, it's all around us as we look. And I think it's also fascinating as well that, and I, th- I don't think I'm having, you know, being nationalistic here and having a bias from, from my own country, but when you look at the creative influence of Britain amongst the world, it's incredible, especially for such a small country, you know, but its impact on, on, on fashion, on music, on filmmaking, on storytelling, on so many things, on design, on engineering, um, invention. You know, so many things have been born in that great country. Um, But it is creativity and eccentricity that's, especially from the North and the working classes who have really been the the catalysts within that.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you talked about the North and um, the 80s and Thatcherism, I couldn't help think of... Um, a film called Brastoff. So, if there's anyone from America yes. who goes, what was this about? Watch a film called Brastoff. That gives you a very working class miner's view of the problems and the the challenges faced. I think the worst thing is, in many many of those towns, they
1: haven't hugely changed. Not because they don't want to, but the opportunity aren't there. The truth is, I thought it mattered. I thought that music mattered, but does it bollocks? not compared to how people matter. That's my Pete Postlethwaite rendition as Danny and Brastoff. And you're right, that is a quintessential British movie that is symbolic of those times. The other thing that, that really came through, as I was thinking about this,
0: you know, clearly I'm a, I'm a Northern, I'm proud of where I came from, but you see an identity there that, that perhaps, you know, a lot of cities and countries that restrict expression you just don't have that level of attachment. So, you know, here, you, who are you? I'm a mank. I'm a scouser. Even, even the bit in the middle, I'm from St. Helens, passionately St. Helens. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a mank, not a scouser. I'm from St. Helens. Yeah, or Wigan. But you, you know, I, I'm trying to. I i can't. I just can't imagine that for Dubai. What do you do? I'm from Dubai. Yeah.
1: I just, you know, I, I can't see that. I, I, um, you know, that no, attachment to place a, happening. A, it's 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 one of the conundrums of Great Britain and how you can go one hour South, East, North, or West and go and, and be in a completely different zone. The architecture is different. The food's different. The dialect's different. People look differently. They dress differently. I mean, you know, take Liverpool and Manchester. The, the, the cities are basically joined on to one another, really given urban spread and all that. Right. But yet they're so incredibly different in terms of how they look, how they sound And just how they are, you know, the culture, the microculture is, is, is not, you know, it's different, but it's very similar, but it's very different. And similarly with Edinburgh and Glasgow, you know, they're only 40 minutes away from one another. But, you know, there's just, they're, they're diametrically opposed. I think maybe,
0: maybe there's that point about, you talked before about um, the Beatles and and the Kinks, both battling each other whilst having a respect and i think you see the same thing in football you see the same thing in music liverpool manchester edinburgh um glasgow you see that same that same we're yeah. both northerners but we're absolutely better than you so we're going to battle but i think if you go if you go if you then went right so what
1: about london oh no no we're, we're, we're both we're both better than london because london belongs to everyone just like new york belongs to everyone because it's, it's that diversity of of it's like cocktail melting pot so to speak but you know, Manchester belongs to a Mancunian, right? Liverpool belongs to a Liverpoolian, and there's that healthy competition that you're given. That nod to Gary, there, like right? they're all pushing one another to be healthily better, not better necessarily than one another, but to be, you know, get to that next frontier before the other one does, right? And that that means innovating, doing something new. You know,
0: so picking up picking up on that point about innovation and
1: growth have you have you in order to be successful do you have to sell out no absolutely not i mean look at the beatles right now let me just kind of go through this just so i can get the the, the, articulate exactly kind of what i mean here the beatles i believe are a prime example of why not to sell out when you make it big so the beatles when they started off they started off as imitators of american gospel rhythm and blues, rockabilly, and early rock and roll. And, you know, their music dealt with love songs and teen relationships, which was really the standard fare of the day. They were singing in American accents. Um, You know, they were copyists. That's the point I'm making. But really what they were doing there, uh, they were obviously doing what they they enjoyed and they loved, right? But as part of their artistic journey, they were mastering, they were learning and mastering their craft, to understand the technical aspects of what it means to be a musician, and then eventually becoming songwriter experts. Now, when you look at artists and many other pioneers in their field, almost all of them started off the same, right? Banksy, Dali, Matisse, Michelangelo, Picasso, Warhol. They all started off as imitators of the masters of that time, And what they were doing there is they were learning, they were developing their craft until they found their own unique style, right? So education, learning the basis, getting the core foundations is essential to get that in place and to learn learn that and to learn it really, really well before you can truly formulate your own unique voice and style and make that sustain. I don't just mean having a one-off piece, Oh, that, well, that was kind of different. That was kind of um, quirky. That was unique. The real art is where you can create a movement and that movement affects pop culture and eventually kind of history. And so about halfway through the duration of the Beatles' existence, they found their authentic voice and style. And that meant producing lyrics and music about everyday life and observations in their native Liverpudlian accents. And ultimately, they became true artists who revolutionised how music was made and acted, not only within the the music industry, but acted as a catalyst and soundtrack for pop culture through social justice movements. And so when they did Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, that provided one of the most prolific musical cornerstones in history. And that then... Um, ignited the whole summer of love soundtrack. The, the Beatles maintained a, like a canonized status of unprecedented um, status for, for musicians to date. I mean, even when after they they broke up in 1970, to date their legacy, their mythology, and their 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 um, sales—if you want to qualify success in terms of of money—has propelled you know, but. The bottom line with them is if they had sold out, right, they would have sold out at the beginning. They would have cashed in on being mass repeaters of that love songs of the generation, um, you know, and being pedestrian along that and just milking the cow until it was empty, like many others do and still do to this kind of date. But that has a short lifespan. And when fashion moves and when time moves and you're not part of that or you're not defining that and you're not at the forefront of that, you then risk... Um, being, you know, marginalized and swiftly um, rejected as, as a future will, will leave you behind. And so I think the Beatles are a great example of, you know, when it's so easy to sell out, you absolutely don't. Right. And you stick to innovation, you stick to creativity, you stick to to being authentic. And ironically, by being like that, by not riding that commercial wave, they ended up becoming even more successful and even more fruitful within the art that they produced. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the, I mean, this
0: this is something we we attended together. I think one of the best demonstrations of this was um the Cirque du Soleil show Love oh, in yeah. uh, Vegas. If you go, we're gonna take 50-year-old material, you know, we, we went there two or three years ago. We're gonna take 50-year-old material, we're gonna fuse that with world-class production, the best gymnasts and performers and you know just unrivaled quality of experience 50 year old music and this is selling out it's it's a, a stunning show but i think certainly shows that relevance and brings their, their their catalog to life
1: i don't know i mean we it was a it was a it was a great show it was extraordinary you know and, and i don't use that word often but it really was and the i mean apart from the technical excellence the, um, the experiential excellence, the performance, all of that was just, you know, as good as it possibly could get in that realm. But the thing that was alarmingly surprising to me was I've listened to the Beatles for as long as I can remember from coming into the world and having that played on record players and by parents, grandparents, by aunts, uncles, you name it, right? The Beatles were always there. And then like you say, you know, like to, to, to go into that experience and where they have this, they've, they've basically used that soundtrack and what it ended up doing to me was it redefined how I listened to and thought about Beatles songs, which was just an insane thing to be able to, to, to do. And I thought that was really powerful.
0: Yeah. And credit to Giles Martin, who did the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, right. the soundtrack, brilliant yeah. piece of work. So let's, let's take it, let's bring a couple of the themes together. And and let's let's challenge. I'm going to challenge a bit more. The creative industry is not short of those who benefited from privileges, certainly in um, some industries, whether really schools, funding of work experience, internships, or leveraging personal networks for opportunities. Um, Certainly true in TV, media, and absolutely in advertising. Apart from it being unfair to those who don't have access to those benefits, is there a bigger loss? Let
1: me first provide a philosophical context here. Of course, idiosyncrasies exist, though fundamentally, people are the same everywhere in that we are all born, live, and die, have loves, hates, and passions, the same biotic structure of brain, nerves, organs, and skin. We breathe, drink, and eat to stay alive. But what makes us unique? is how we self-identify by interpreting the world around us, discovering our own strengths, and expressing our personalities, talents, and triumphs. Embracing diversity helps us both understand each other and ourselves and recognising and respecting our individual differences in gender, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, physical abilities, age, social and economic status, religious and political beliefs, and other ideologies, needs to be the norm and accepted without question. So I I, I deeply get and, and appreciate and value that. I, I, I truly do. Because when people feel included, they build meaningful social relationships, they have a stronger sense of belonging, they don't become victims or or a source of retali- for, for retaliation, and they inspire creativity and innovation in themselves and others. And so the more you interact and collaborate with people from different cultural backgrounds, disciplines, industries, and geographies, the more you understand, respect, and value them, and the more enriched and fulfilled your life experience will be. And we all benefit from learning from one another's. Growing up, again, back in the, the United Kingdom, when you were listening to, when you were watching television shows or anything within the media, it always had that Anglo-Saxon, middle-aged male with a, with a booming voice, with a, um, sophisticated language and who just looked, sounded and dressed like someone that I could not relate to. I, people like that just did not exist in my everyday life, but it wasn't just about that. They were just speaking about people that had no, it could have been from another universe, right? Um, and to me that, that was just a, a massive turn off. And also the, the jokes and the, you know, which was sexist and racist and elitist as well just even at that age and in, in time it was just why is this why, why is this being allowed to happen and so i think by the disruption the radical disruption in some cases of the the media industry and the democratization and the need for for diversity and inclusion has been a really really important thing to have people from all different backgrounds and and um Diversity, and I, I'm not, you know, but within that, what I'm not trying to say is people shouldn't just be getting, um, being in professions just because of a certain credential that they have that isn't equated with having the skill and the talent. Right? Skill and talent is really important, and you know, you've you've got to be able to to equate that while still keeping in mind that we we need diverse people who project a world view. Um, rather than the elite few. And that was very much the case in British media back back then. I think it's
0: still relevant though, because if I look at the UK, we have a, um, a prime minister who went to arguably the most elite school yeah. in the uh, country, has never, you know, you might argue differently, but certainly never been short of money. And I, I wonder, you know, sometimes, how does a politician from a multimillionaire family understand how it feels to live in poverty? Yeah. So maybe maybe the point is you don't have to do that, but at least accept what you aren't going to know. You you cannot be authentic in understanding that. However much you say, I don't think unless you've lived in that world, you are not going to understand what it's like. So at least accept that you can't understand what it's like and take advice from those who have lived in that world.
1: Exactly. All of that points you said there, Gary, for sure. But I think the fundamental thing with... Politicians, and in, in, in the context of what you just said there, their job first and foremost is to man- is to lead a country and to be skilled in the ability to do that. So to be really knowledgeable around how economics works, how politics works, how security works, um, the different um, persona types and, and and culture that exists within the kind of country, and then you know be able to manage that effectively and optimally for the best of the country. And I just don't think that that's been missing from the UK and America um, for, for a long time. And a lot of it is, I believe, is it's back to that whole thing around, would you allow your child to be taught by a teacher that couldn't teach? Would you would you aboard a plane that the pilot just didn't, did not have enough experience or be operated on by, by a doctor that just didn't have that experience? Why are politicians being not being filtered through the system, and why is the culture of politics not managed in a way that it starts to marginalize these brilliant self-marketeers who know how to politicize and navigate through a political process and system versus people that genuinely have the right values, behaviors, competencies, and the capability to to lead countries and people in a way that it's, it's, it's making the country better right and the people it's, it's having a people first led agenda yeah and i think that probably you know wraps up
0: this part we'll, we'll, we've got one final bit i think to move on to but i think it certainly wraps it up that authenticity is just about equity equality and humanity you know that's why it matters anyway i'm going to move it right back to where we started right back to you right back to unknown origins so you've had an incredible career You've worked as a creative director at what is now the world's largest software company. Two and a half trillion dollar company when I checked before. So what's it like to start a new business and what are the keys to success and pitfalls
1: to be aware of? I think we're all through. We're kind of listening to people who are overly humble and play things kind of down. And any intelligent person can see through that. Just be honest and tell the story because your audience is intelligent enough to work out. Things and to interpret it for what it means to to them. My pursuit in life has always been driven by the need to be free and to do what you want. And so, entrepreneurship has been liberating and it forces you to be very disciplined on the importance of focus. And I mean, true focus and being agile to quickly repivot and adapt as and when need be, and not to rest on your laurels by any means, and to constantly hone. And innovate your craft all the way through to being a true expert at what you can do and having a clear and distinct value proposition that sets you apart in your industry. And having a viable business model is priority number one, it sustains itself. And so, understanding your audience and showing up where they are and making the difference is really, really important. So, being clear about what you are and what you are not. And that means making decisions and prioritizing in a way that you say what you mean and you do what you say and be really disciplined in that because it's so easy as we all do to get distracted by many, many things in our everyday life. People that really do differentiate are the ones that can be so disciplined and focused on following through and executing on things and then when that's executed well, it leads to the next best thing and then the next best thing. And, you know, ideas are just ideas unless you can bring them to to life. And the importance of time and how you make the best of it. Because every second counts. You can't afford to waste it. Excellent.
0: So the podcast, the book, the writing, all the execution, the blog posts, speaking engagements, they all build a wider community. How do you see this evolving in the future? Where is... Unknown origins heading.
1: It is and will always be to make our mission real, which is saving the world from unoriginality by unleashing the creative power of creativity. And so bringing that to life will involve continually building out storytelling assets and servicing the audience journey with creative strategy brand creation storytelling and envisioning solutions one final question and then we're going to go into some very fast um closing questions
0: what company would you love to see embrace the lessons in your book
1: i think it speaks for every business type educator entrepreneur and artist though you asked specifically one company and although i love working with ambitious and radical startups and scaling them to be in more mature businesses, I think helping a large company who has reached an inflection point, a a tipping point in their evolution where reinventing themselves and innovating into articulating their story, their value proposition, and then branding it um, through the the right identity, the right narrative, um, and positioning their their business and reimagining their story, and as I mentioned, their narrative to help them firmly position themselves to make the difference would be of real interest at the moment. And there are many of those companies out there in need of this. So naming one would be especially difficult and unfair on them to single them out. But um, that would be really desirable to to, to work with a business at at that stage of their evolution.
0: Thanks, Roy. So as we wind up, i'm going to give you some quick questions and i'm going to cap you on the time with these so they have got to be quick answers what advice would you give to your 20 year
1: old self what few words would you say it's got to be short be prepared to make the essential sacrifices by being laser focused and truly committing to mastering your craft by doing so That will accelerate you to where you truly want to be. Who is a really underappreciated artist? The German artist, John Bach. Favourite musician and why? Well, it it has to be Lennon and McCartney. I know you asked for a musician, but I I cannot separate them two. Sorry, We'll we'll allow you a duo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are the most prolific creative duo, duo of modern times who wrote extraordinary songs and their legacy speaks for itself. And that's had such a positive impact upon millions of people. It's just brought so much joy to, to many generations. And uh, they perf- they personify what it means to create without frontiers. An
0: artist who you don't know, who you just know you would get on well with? Banksy. Someone who's no longer with us. I dead. Who would... You- who would you love a conversation with if you could, you know, magically either go back in time and talk to
1: people. Leonardo da Vinci? Okay,
0: and the final one in this section: who would you love to collaborate with? Maybe someone who, where you know, people, who, who is uh, people are not
1: necessarily familiar with. As Devlin, as if you're listening, Roy. At unknownorigins.com. Fantastic. Okay, so last last two questions. I'm 16. Who should I pay attention
0: to? You've covered a lot of artists, musicians. Who should I pay attention
1: to in your book? The book encompasses the synthesis of the creative practices of many creators, knowledge bases, and domains throughout the creative industry, from artists, designers, musicians, curators, to entrepreneurs, executives, educators, and athletes. So to stalemate me, just to one, is hard. However, I'll provide a glimpse into some of the ones I interviewed who have been omnipresent in influencing pop culture and society in their own unique way, and an emerging one. Musician, singer, and songwriter, Johnny Marr the artist and illustrator Anita Kuntz. Her work has been internationally shown and published for our covers for The New Yorker, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone and The New York Times Magazine and many others. Design pioneer Clive Grenier, who has led award-winning design teams for companies worldwide, including IDEO, and founded the consultancy Tangerine with Apple Design Chief Sir Johnny Ive and his head, of the Pioneering Service Design Programme at the Royal College of Art in London. Photographer Jill Furmanowski who has taken pictures of some of the greatest musicians of all time, including Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Madness, Pink Floyd, Bob Dylan, Chrissy Hind, and Bjork. Graphic designer Malcolm Garrett, who has created landmark designs for musicians and bands, including... Buzzcocks, Duran Duran, Simple Minds, Boy George, Peter Gabriel, Oasis and Pulp. And the fashion entrepreneur, Jonathan Burns, who is the CEO of Style Crate, which provides eco-friendly clothes delivered to your door every month. And the glittering prize, the new gold dreamer, the treasure trove, citizen of the world, the man who sold the world, oppressor of champions, Wars conquered, bears wrestled, tigers tamed, equations solved, revolutions quailed. The right honourable soothsayer and people's poet, Gary Burt.
0: (laughs) And the final question. So this is the, the final, final question.
1: I'm just going to give you a name and you can respond however you like. David Byrne. The space people think that factories are musical instruments. They sing along with them. Each song lasts from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. No music on weekends.
0: Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers, how to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital, and audio, and all relevant book platforms. You've been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.